folks, welcome to another episode of Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing you news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. In this episode, I talk about the new wave of laws restricting or almost totally banning abortion, the magnificent gift that black billionaire Robert F. Smith gave to Morehouse's 2019 graduating class and the anniversary of the Brown v. Board decision and the continuing issue of racial segregation in schools. But first, some announcements and updates. Welcome to Christina Button, who has graciously signed on as our production assistant. She is mainly in charge of helping me keep up to date on current events, providing background and context for the stories that we cover here, and for giving input and analysis as I discuss each topic. So welcome, Christina. I look forward to working with you. Also, we're up to 94 ratings. This is amazing, considering this is just our third full episode. I want to read one of the reviews on this episode, and it comes from Mohawk Mama 8 and she says, Jamar's light-chasing work is honest and empowering. This podcast is helping us process and heal. He's making sure we pierce the darkness and amplify light intelligently and faithfully. (laughs) I love this review for its poetic prose. That term, light chaser, it's so beautiful. It's very flattering. Now, of course, I fail at least as often as I succeed in this endeavor. But this is indeed the hope to bring light, to bring truth. So thank you, Mohawk Mama. Also, if you're listening and you like this podcast, please take two or three minutes to subscribe, rate, and review. If you've already done that, then here's the next step. Would you share this episode with someone? You can share it with someone you think will disagree and use it as a conversation starter. Or if you want life to be a little bit easier on yourself, you can share it with someone who you think will agree and maybe they'll be encouraged. And I do hope this podcast provides some mental refreshment for people, especially Christians, who are tired of a culture wars type of commentary on current events and want to hear another perspective. Lastly, I want to give you a heads up about a couple of documentaries that I am very much looking forward to, even though they're on sobering topics. The first is called Emmanuel. It's about the horrific 2015 white supremacist terrorist attack that took place at the historic Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Nine black churchgoers at a Bible study were killed in the attack. This film includes firsthand interviews of survivors and family members of those killed in the attack. It's directed by Brian Ivey and produced by such stars as Steph Curry and Viola Davis. The movie comes out on June 17th in theaters, and that's a date exactly four years after the attack. So I encourage you to make your way to the theater and watch this movie as soon as you are able to do so. Now, the second documentary is called When They See Us. It details the saga of the so-called Central Park Five. According to the press release for this Ava DuVernay-directed work, When They See Us will chronicle the case of five teenagers of color who were convicted of a rape they did not commit. 
This four-part limited series will focus on the five teenagers from Harlem, whose names are Anton, Kevin, Yusef, Raymond, and Corey. The series will span 25 years highlighting their exoneration in 2002, finally, and the settlement reached with the city of New York in 2014. You won't even have to leave your house to see this one. It's a Netflix special, and it comes out on May 31st, 2019. So stay tuned for both of these documentaries. I'll almost certainly either write or tweet about them. Make sure you see them so we can have a conversation. Now, on to the news. First up, the Alabama legislature passes the nation's most restrictive abortion law. On May 2015, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey signed into law the nation's most restrictive abortion policy. The new law proposes an almost complete ban on abortion at any stage of pregnancy, and most controversially, even for some pro-lifers, it does not include exceptions in the cases of rape or incest. The law also includes a felony charge against doctors who perform or attempt to perform an abortion with a sentence of up to 99 years in prison. In signing the law, Governor Ivey said, This legislation stands as a powerful testament to Alabamians' deeply held belief that every life is precious and that every life is a sacred gift from God. Now, this decision sets up battles with numerous constituencies, including the United States Supreme Court, because it directly challenges the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling. This decision has already been challenged by the Alabama chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU. The group vowed to, quote, stop this unconstitutional ban and to protect every woman's right to make her own choice about her health care, her body, and her future. Now, the Alabama law is merely the strictest in a string of laws that have been passed by conservative legislatures in various states. Mississippi, Ohio, Georgia, Kentucky, Missouri, and more have all passed or proposed so-called heartbeat bills that would ban abortion after a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which is often as early as six weeks into pregnancy before many women even know they're pregnant. So let's break it down. First, language matters. Depending on the source, you'll hear the terms pro-life or anti-abortion. The idea from those who want to overturn Roe v. Wade is that they want to convey what they're positively for, meaning the life of the unborn, as opposed to what what they are against, namely abortion. Now, personally, I think the term anti-abortion is more accurate since these laws focus specifically on abortion and not on other quality of life factors, but I'll get into that in a moment. I don't really mean that term anti-abortion as pejorative, but I do recognize that it has that context for some. Other terms that are important are these, fetus or baby. Abortion rights activists tend to use the language of fetus, especially in the first trimester, because they want to express the idea that the fetus is totally dependent on the mother, and the mother should have a choice about whether to proceed with the pregnancy or not, especially in the early stages. 
Anti-abortion activists use the term baby because they want to express the idea that this is a human life in the womb, no matter what stage of development. Now, a second set of factors to consider as these anti-abortion laws are, are sort of flooding the legal system, a second set of factors to consider is the male-female dynamic. By far, the people most affected by this legal debate that has profound real-world ramifications are women. It's the woman's body and most often the woman's entire life in terms of raising the child that are at issue with the child she carries with this abortion debate. None of these proposed restrictions on abortions say much, if anything, about the responsibility of the man who got the woman pregnant. Instead, the people who face the legal penalties are the doctors who perform the abortion or the women themselves. Addressing the issue of abortion in a comprehensive manner requires the fathers to bear as much responsibility as the mothers. I saw one tweet that put the issue of male and female in stark terms. Now, I'm paraphrasing here, but this person, she made the point that millions of men's careers and financial fortunes have been built or prolonged through secret abortions. So whether you're anti-abortion or pro-choice or undecided, she has a point. Women have the obvious burden when it comes to pregnancy and abortion. But how many men who thought about their own lives, their own careers, their own convenience will ever be mentioned when it comes to abortion? Just something to ponder. My last point is this. Christian conservatives pushing for abortion restrictions or bans have a credibility problem. Well, let me say that again. Christian conservatives pushing for abortion restrictions or bans have a credibility problem. For decades, many Christians, especially legislators, have opposed policies and laws that would alleviate the conditions that often lead women to decide to get an abortion. This gets back to my earlier point about pro-life or anti-abortion as terms. So in my view, politically and theologically conservative Christians have been far more anti-abortion than pro-life. And I think there's a difference between that. Anti-abortion really focuses on overturning Roe v. Wade and that specific law. Pro-life, as I'll explain in a moment, has to do with life from womb to tomb. I think pro-life also has as its goal the idea of reducing abortions, not necessarily overturning Roe v. Wade. So reducing abortions and overturning Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade are not necessarily the same idea. So I said that theologically and politically conservative Christians have a credibility problem. Let me give you a few examples. According to the Center for Disease Control, CDC, Alabama has one of the highest rates of infant mortality in the entire nation. It's 7.4, 7.4 deaths per 1,000 births. By contrast, the state with the lowest rate is Massachusetts at 3.7. This highest death rate, mortality rate for infants, this is from the state that has just passed an almost total ban on abortions and calls itself pro-life. It begs the question of what happens to those babies immediately after they are born. Similarly, Mississippi, where I go to school, has the absolute highest rate of infant mortality at 8.6 deaths 
per 1,000 births. And Mississippi is also attempting to pass a so-called heartbeat bill to ban abortions after six weeks when a fetal heartbeat can be detected. Again, it's just a question we should ask. What happens to the baby immediately after he or she is born? If healthcare is the issue, then it's significant that many of the states passing the most restrictive abortion laws are also the ones largely opposed to Medicaid expansion or universal healthcare. States such as Arkansas passed work requirement provisions that say in order to qualify for Medicaid, potential recipients have to prove that they have worked, volunteered, or trained for work before they can receive benefits. So far, in Arkansas, 18,000 people have lost their coverage. And much of that is due to unclear rules and a lack of information to the people receiving Medicaid benefits. Similarly, some of the most ardent anti-abortion activists also push back against gun control and gun reform. Under the banner of the Second Amendment, many Christian conservatives have opposed measures such as universal background checks, tighter restrictions on gun ownership for people who have been convicted of domestic abuse, they've opposed universal background checks, and they want to arm teachers or put armed security guards in schools, which, as a former teacher and principal, I can tell you is a very bad idea. Ask me on social media or online why I think that is. If we go back a little bit, we can remember the opposition of many conservative Christians to Black Lives Matter, both the sentiment and the organization. They responded instead with All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, which didn't exactly convince black people and their advocates that these folks actually understood the problem of black lives actually mattering. This all goes to the issue of credibility. On top of that, an increasingly vociferous cadre of conservative Christians on social media and the blogosphere and the podcast universe, they don't think that issues of social justice or public justice should even be part of the gospel. So when it comes to pro-life as a comprehensive ethic of life from womb to tomb, politically and theologically conservative Christians have a credibility problem. Perhaps if anti-abortion advocates want to build their case with the public, they can also address some of the systemic issues of injustice that create the conditions where women see abortion as their only viable option. Now look, this is not a comprehensive discussion of abortion, obviously. Much more could be said. I've just tried to add some context. Let me end this segment by saying this. God is the Lord of life. That goes for all of life at any stage of life and everyone's life, no matter their race, ethnicity, gender, or socioeconomic status. Let's ponder what that means and act accordingly. On to topic number two. A billionaire pays the student loan debt of Morehouse's 2019 graduating class. Have you ever heard of Robert F. Smith? I came across him several years ago in the midst of some research I was doing for a graduate class on the history of capitalism. 
He's an interesting man. Perhaps he's best known for being the richest African-American in the United States. His net worth is estimated at about $5 billion. And he made his fortune by founding a private equity firm named Vista Equity. You can learn more about Robert F. Smith and other black entrepreneurs in a PBS documentary I highly recommend called Boss, The Black Experience in Business. Boss, The Black Experience in Business. Well, Mr. Smith transformed the lives of 400 graduates from Morehouse College, a historically black all-men's college in Atlanta, by announcing that he would pay off all their student debt. Smith was the commencement speaker at this year's graduating class, and to announce the gift, he said, quote, This is my class, and my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. Well, it took a moment for the gravity of what he said to sink in, but then the crowd erupted. One of the students said, Everyone jumped up, cheered. People were crying. It was the most amazing thing. Obviously, this is a massive gesture of generosity, but I meant it when I said it was life-changing. Student loan debt has doubled just since the recession of 2009, and it now stands at $1.465 trillion. That's higher than debts for either auto loans or credit cards. And the problem is even more pronounced for African Americans. According to an article in Forbes, black students take on 85% more debt than white students and have a harder time paying it back. These debts prevent students from enrolling in more school for masters or PhDs. They close off options like service or lower paying but important jobs such as teaching Not to mention the intangible cost of constantly worrying about debt and decades of fretting about whether you'll have enough money to survive. So I had two thoughts when I heard this momentous news. One, why aren't churches doing something similar? And two, this is a splendid act, but it does little to alleviate the systemic issue at the heart of the student loan debt crisis. So first, every time I see some monumental gift, especially financial, I wonder, what is preventing Christian churches from doing something similar? Christians in this country are spectacularly wealthy, especially compared to most Christians throughout history and around the world in the present day. A 2015 Christianity Today article said that parishioners give the Southern Baptist Convention, just the SBC, one denomination, more than $11 billion a year. Roughly three times as much as as America's largest charity, the United Way. So, bravo for church giving and tithing. And churches do phenomenal work donating to charities and other nonprofits, but I think we could use a little more imagination about how to use all this church money for the public good. How could we deploy these funds to eliminate student debt, for instance, or housing loan debt, to fund public education for the most financially impoverished students, to prevent or at least slow down gentrification and the displacement of the poor? or even for reparations for the descendants of enslaved Africans 
Now, look, I don't have a prescription here. I just think that churches will be called to account by the Lord and their communities for how they used their financial resources. No single individual should be more generous than the church. Second, enormous gifts like this one, as generous as it is, don't do anything about the systemic issue of student loan debt which takes nothing away from the magnanimity of Robert F. Smith's gift. Bravo to him. More power to you. But the fact is that tuition has skyrocketed in the past few decades. Many students are graduating with crippling five or even six-figure debt. As I mentioned a minute ago, these debts disproportionately affect black people. So the question is, what are we doing about the bigger issue about this massive debt that is required to get a college education. An education that is increasingly necessary just to enter the workforce in this 21st century global economy. Thankfully, many politicians have recognized the urgency of the student loan debt issue, and many of the Democratic candidates for president have outlined plans to alleviate student loan debt, the most ambitious of which is a plan for universal free college. So, As you watch the 2020 presidential election unfold, pay attention to how candidates propose to address the student loan debt crisis, or even if they intend to address it at all. It was the anniversary of the Brown v. Board of Education decision. 65 years ago, the United States Supreme Court issued a landmark ruling in Brown v. Board of Education. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, representing plaintiffs, argued that segregated schools violated the equal protection of the law guaranteed by the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. And the justices agreed. The unanimous 9-0 decision declared that, quote, separate educational facilities are inherently unequal and they ordered school districts to desegregate. Civil rights activists celebrated this decision. Of course, it, it, it basically heralded the desegregation of any public institution, even though it pertains specifically to schools, and was kind of the legal end, at least explicitly, to the Jim Crow era of segregation. But even though in 1954 the Supreme Court legally desegregated schools, segregation in public schools persists. A study released by the UCLA Civil Rights Project reported that there is, quote, no cause for celebration, that by 2016, 40% of all black students were in schools with 90% or more students of color. New York, California, Illinois, Maryland, Four states in which a majority of black students attended a school that was 90 to 100 percent non-white. Segregation for black students has actually increased in all parts of the country except the Midwest. Someone said, quote, the sad thing honestly is here 60 years after Brown v. Board, so many black, Latino and poor kids are in schools that are that are as highly segregated as was true 10 years after Brown v. Board. That was Noliwe Brooks, a professor of Africana Studies at Cornell. She also said, 
one of the reasons we've returned to such high levels of segregation is we refuse to believe that separate is inherently unequal. Now, of all the many, many news topics I could have covered, I chose to highlight this one because it really impacts us right at home. There's few decisions that are more personal than where to send your kids to school. And I speak to Christians now and say that if you are for integration, for racial equality, if you want to be an anti-racist, then you have to think seriously about where you choose to send your children to school. We all want our kids to get the best education possible. By the way, so do parents who are financially poor. So do black parents, and Latino and Latina parents. All of us as parents want our kids to get the best education possible. The way the system is set up depends a lot on property taxes so that Wealthier districts, wealthier people, wealthier communities get the best resources, even in public education, which by definition of being public is supposed to apply equally to all people. But that's not the way it works. Some public schools get massively more resources than other public schools. And where you go to school, even K through 12, has incredibly important implications for where you end up in life financially. And so as believers who want to work against the racist status quo in our society, we have to think critically about whether we're going to send our kids to that private Christian school, to the local public school in our district, which is more affluent, to the underperforming public school, which is majority black or brown kids. But because of the resources and the history, they're just not performing on standardized tests or having the same level of qualified teachers or leadership as other schools. All that has implications. I can't tell you what to do. What I can say is that this is an important decision and it has implications for where you stand on race and segregation. The reality is that when we stand up for racial justice, it might include our entire families, and it might include our kids, and it might affect their educational options. But if you're thinking as a a person of faith or simply an anti-racist, no matter what your faith may be or not be, about participating in dismantling these systems, then you have to think about where you send your kids to school. And you have to think about the fact that people who don't have as many resources as you financially or in your social networks, they don't have a choice. Nicole Hannah-Jones is probably the leading authority on the issue of modern-day school segregation. And what she argues is basically that as long as schools remain racially segregated, they will always be unequal. So I don't have solutions here, but I do think as people of faith, we need to think deeply about what our school and education-related decisions say about our commitment to racial integration, equality of opportunity, and the equality of all people. Just something to ponder. Thanks for listening in. This has been Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby. 
Thanks to Christina Button, our production assistant. Thanks for Bo York, our producer. And we'll see you soon on the next Footnotes.